if you're listening to this um, podcast in general, do something big, do something important. If you're capable of thinking about very tough, big problems, I feel you have an obligation to do something about solving it. And that's what we need. And that's typically, you know, puts you in the realm of working with governments, then do it. Do what it takes. We need people solving big ass problems, not building another application. This is Undiluted, the show about the amazing founders and companies who've used government research and development grants, contracts, and sales to build their products, grow their companies, and keep their equity. We are Katie Person and Jean Kesselman from MIT Mission Innovation X and Jeff Orism from FedScout. And on today's show, we learn how one person's passion for space became a reality thanks to a seasoned board of advisors, funding, support from the Air Force, and that certain disposition that makes entrepreneurs shape their own destiny. I, <laughs> I was um, a scrappy kid from Philadelphia, and it didn't help. It took me time to grow out of that. I grew up outside of Philadelphia, and there was, I think, three blocks, a cemetery, and then West Philadelphia proper. And then the other direction, there was three houses, a main thoroughfare, Baltimore Pike, and then a couple houses and then train tracks. So it wasn't the most glamorous of places uh, to grow up. And technically I grew up on the right side of the train tracks, but when you grow up that close to the train tracks, it doesn't really matter which side you grew up on. Um, so that was where I grew up and I ended up going to a high school being a minority. And my brother, older brother had to go through it and fight his way through. I happened to be an athlete as well. So I didn't have any issues. And when I got into the real world, it was, uh, I was a clear majority, which was a huge eye-opener, but the experience going through high school was a humbling factor that has carried me through and, and given me at least some understanding of what it's like not to be a majority. The, the experience I had in high school was great, but I still ended up graduating a year early. I graduated high school one year early, and I was accepted to Drexel University's engineering program, which is cool. And then I dropped out six months later and I call myself an overachiever because I was able to get into college and drop out before the rest of my friends graduated high school. I ended up starting an internship at this civil engineering firm and it was my first like corporate experience. And I knew I wanted to just get out into the world, start doing things. And I got this, this good gig. And I remember several times just learning about how middle management worked and these guys were in their thirties, forties, and fifties. And they're just now getting into six figures. And I remember having this just disappointing feeling like this isn't for me. I don't want this. I don't want to work 10 years just to get to that level. I want to go do something different. And I ended up getting into some multi-level marketing and, and really getting some crazy rough sales skills. And that helped. It helped a lot. And then a friend of mine was caddying at Marion Golf Course in, in uh, Philadelphia. And I had this crazy idea on a Sunday to move to California. I convinced myself that I was going to go on Wednesday. I convinced my buddy by Friday that we were going to go. And we were packed up the car and in the car driving at 3 a.m. on Easter Sunday. Clearly, my parents were not happy. But I realized at that point, if I was going to do something different with my life, I couldn't keep hanging out with the same people. And I'd end up having their life if I stayed where I was. And at the time it was tough. I had a younger brother who was only five years old, which, which sucked. But I knew that if I, if I was able to get out there in the world and improve my corner of the world, I'd be able to improve everyone else's corner of the world that's around me. And I took that on, 
we ended up driving across country nonstop. Lots of fun anecdotal stories from going from Philly at 19 years old and driving nonstop. We ended up stopping in Vegas and then for a night and then going uh, to LA. We slept in the living room of a friend from high school's house and we ended up caddying at this course in Simi Valley. While caddying, we ended up caddying for these guys that owned the boutique finance company. One of them, <clears throat> one of the owners said, I got a 23-year-old kid making 300 grand a year. And I think I just went, I, I either saw red or I went black. That's all I needed to hear. Whatever it was that this kid was doing, I was all in on it. And I was about to turn, I was like six months, I was still 20, I was six months before my 21st. And uh, we ended up moving out of Monterey, uh, California, and I moved back home in Philly. And I applied for a job at this company and this company would not hire me. They were just like, absolutely not. This kid is so rough, so terrible. We don't want him to represent our company in any way, shape or form. So five applications later, I ended up getting some other small finance job. And then it was my 21st birthday. I finally got the approval like, okay, we're not going to hire you as a sales guy. You can be an intern for us. And you have to move to Connecticut from Philadelphia. I was like, whatever, I'm all in on, on taking advantage of this. And four weeks after my 21st birthday, I was an intern living in Westport, Connecticut and uh, working for the second largest owner of the company. Uh, that summer we put together for four months, we put together this whole sales training thing and it was a lot of fun. And then they let me become a sales guy. So at that point there were, I don't know, dozens and dozens of sales people in the company. And I ended up shooting up to top five sales guy in the company within just a few months and ultimately became a VP of the national finance group by the time I was 25 for that company. Unfortunately, that I think I got promoted in 2007 and then 2008 happened. Then the whole market crashed. We went from 120 employees down to, I think it was the last eight or, or 10 or 12 or something. Ended up moving back uh, to, to Philly in 2009 and calling some mentors like, what do I do next? So I, I started my own real estate company and I did that because I had this really good experience with cell towers and financing and all that. But the, the impetus was get my shit together, give myself enough money to have enough time to think about what I actually want to do with my life. I was good at something and I could make money at something, which was a blessing by itself, but I wanted, I felt I was here for more. And that is why I believe God put me on this planet is to do what I'm doing now. But it was 2015 when I realized I should probably figure that out. So without me knowing much about your company, what is your company? The birth of the company is interesting. What, what we're focused on right now is uh, the company's called Nebula Compute. And we're focused on bringing cloud computing to space. Uh, a lot of reasoning behind that and philosophy behind why we're focused on that very tough problem and why nobody has actually done it before. Uh, but the backstory is somewhat similar. I started that company in 2015 and I did it to get enough cash to have enough time to think about what I want to do with my life. And in 2017, in those two years, I ended up getting engaged, getting married, buying a house and buying my first Tesla. And then I had enough cash even still after that to be able to think about what I want to do. And at this point, I pulled up the 17 sustainable development goals uh, that, that the UN put together, and I pulled up the 12 global grand challenges by singularity. And I had them on, each on the screen in my office in, in, outside of Philadelphia. 
And I remember thinking, if I'm going to focus on something for more than two or three years, as you heard, my story bounces around a lot. If I'm going to focus on something for more than two or three years, I should really focus on a big problem, a billion person problem, something that is impacting all of humanity or a huge section of humanity. Hence, 17 sustainable development goals or the 12 global grand challenges. And within minutes, I just did a litmus test and I just really quieted down and, and felt how I felt about some of these things. And even though I was in real estate, when I came across shelter, which is one of the global grand challenges, didn't appeal to me at all. Governance was almost like a disgusting repulsion factor when I thought about getting into governance in any way. But when I got to space, it was this, oh my God, I'd, I'd love to do space. I immediately followed that up with, who am I? I I'm not Jeff Bezos, I'm not Branson, I'm not Musk. What am I going to come up with? And I kind of went on and health was interesting. So I ended up spending money time in health, but days were going by and the space thing was really like coming up from within me. And I decided at that moment, a couple of days later, I was like, all right, if I were to do space, what would I do? And I contemplated that. And I, if I dedicated my life to space, I would provide, I would dedicate my life to providing all of humanity access to deep space and infinite resources. Because I believe if we can get access to infinite resources, you can remove 95% of the reason we have conflict here on earth. So, okay, that was good. I literally didn't think about it. Uh, this is now, that's late 17, late 2017. Didn't think about it again until a month after my son was born in mid 18. And it, it was a visceral experience that I had when I was holding my son a month old, thinking, why doesn't he have the future he deserves? And that sent me down this crazy spiral rabbit hole. And as any, any young parents know, sleep was this thing that was rare. So at my house in, in, uh, outside of Philadelphia, we had a formal living room, formal dining room, kitchen, and a family room. So at 1 a.m., I would literally walk my son around in this loop and I would keep myself occupied by thinking about space and what to do and ended up over that summer, I designed uh, a space station and filed a provisional for it and uh, ended up later in seven, uh, 18, getting a group of actual engineers together to, to tell me uh, what I did wrong or what needs to happen with this design. And they actually said, uh, this is really reasonable. This is a really good approach to building such a massive structure you need to figure out the business model. And from there, it was a, another kind of rabbit hole of how do I ask better questions of better people? I ended up identifying uh, a business model that worked in mid 2019. I ended up starting a company uh, that is, that it was not named Nebula Compute, which is what it is today. I changed the name. This is the third, third name change I did for that company. Can you just, can you share a little bit more about what it, what your product does and why it's, why it's important? If you look at, if you believe that humanity is moving into space, and if you look at how those types of infrastructure, energy, and, and communications are done, you would be very disappointed and very, you feel very bleak about the future of humanity because the model by which space is done today and satellites are done today, it's, it's what I call the umbilical cord model. Everything needs to be 100% self-sustaining. So you need to be your own power plant. You need to be, own, be your own data center. You need to be your own sensor. You need to do everything by yourself. And then you got to have to operate in the environment. Terrestrially, as an analog, terrestrially, we have a really good network. And it's made up of data centers and cell towers and fiber optic cables and, and, and edge units. So all your latest cat videos and things like that are cached as close to the population center as you can to avoid using bandwidth for sending videos like that over longer distances. 
and giving free, uh, better access to the Hypercell data centers that are doing the real computation that society needs. If you take that same structure that works really, really well here on Earth and is expanding rapidly, you don't have anything close to that in space. So what we looked at and what were our partnerships are also around is, you know, creating partnerships with the people that are collecting the data from the satellite that's taking the picture and bouncing that over more than likely optically into a network of satellites akin to fiber optic cable, akin to cell towers, and then having Nebula be a node on that network where we can do an insane amount of processing. Literally our Gen 1 that we're, we're building a prototype that's going on the outside of the ISS that'll be on the outside of the ISS in October of 22. And the Gen 1 is 12 times that, but the prototype is 50 times better than almost any onboard computing that you can find in the world today. So if we're a node on a network capable of ingesting tons of data, doing real AI, ML, uh, object detection, change detection on orbit, the ability to accelerate the intelligence that you get from taking a picture is 10x to, to 20x, depending on how quickly you want that. It's a, it's a massive step in the right direction. And again, that's all just to get the infrastructure humanity needs to move beyond Earth. So what I think I just heard is you're going to be sending CPUs, GPUs into orbit that would then become a shared resource for the other satellites that are in orbit. Great. Yeah, we're, we're sending servers to like legitimate cutting edge terrestrial grade servers capable and multiple on a single unit. And then we're sending out multiple units. So we're able to mesh these together and those become just like what we have today. You might have a really cool laptop but you're not running a lot of AI ML on that. You're spinning up an instance in AWS, Azure, or, or Google uh, Cloud to be able to do that. That's what we'll be able to provide on orbit, which is going to change the game because our sensors, another critical problem here, our sensors are taking 100 plus gigabyte per second images. Our bandwidth down through RF is, physics, is, is limited. You're, you're getting into the limit of physics by a couple hundred megabits. So you're taking gigabyte files and you can only send megabyte files. It's a very bad problem. So you end up deleting a lot of information. Being able to send it optically in the vacuum of space, you're already into the gigabyte uh, size uh, range. So you can ingest a lot more data a lot quicker and then do the processing and send what you actually want is the answer of why you took this picture. This is a, for the DOD, this is a tank. This is, there's three tanks here yesterday. There's two tanks here now you can get that information in seconds versus current state of the art is three to nine minutes. Just to, to complete the story, you're not building the server, you're building the shell that the server is sitting in, which is allowing it to dissipate heat and shield it from radiation. Dissipating heat in the vacuum of space is difficult and radiation on electronics is very difficult. Those two will kill you. Like you have no product if you can't solve those two problems. So our IP today is around solving for thermal and solving for radiation. So we took, oh man, six months before we even had a design that didn't actually violate physics. And then when we had that design, it was the, the summer of, of 2019 or 2020, some of our advisors and the T, the small team that we had, we got to get into the lab and start testing this. And then things have just crazily progressed from there. And I had just been introduced to, at the same time, Kratas and Sibbers and all these different things. I remember taking a note, Sibber, when someone said, oh, you got to apply for Sibbers, writing down S-I-B-B-E-R-S. I was like, all right, 
I couldn't find anything when I Googled it, obviously, but I didn't know anything about it and actually had some advisors encouraged me not to do it. Some advised me to do it. And it was an interesting path to, to navigate. I, I hear this a lot. Could you share the, a little bit about the advice that you got from the advisors who advised against? What was their rationale? So our business model is not predicated on space itself. The computing market, and this is very unique, I think, to our business and maybe two or three others. The market that we want to get into is a terrestrial cloud computing market, which is expected to be $832 billion a year with a 13% CAGR in 2025. The space market in total is, depending on who you ask, about $300 billion or $350 billion, and it doesn't have a 13% growth rate. So for us, we're leveraging space to get there. And the advice really came from the fact that there is such a large commercial market that we should focus on that and not focus on the DOD. The, the problem with that statement is the, the CapEx required to do the things we want to do in space is so large that we needed all the help we can get. And sippers are great for that. The advisors you had who did say, yes, go look at Sibber, is that basically what their rationale was? So they suggested the diluge of information was intense coming from all sides. There is a crazy amount of information out there about grants and NSF and NASA and SIBRs and, and creatives, which aren't necessarily financial instruments, but really good instruments. There was a, a ton of information. It was really looking at, well, what do we need at the time? And as any CEO or, or visionary or entrepreneur out there, you're just going to do whatever you can with what you have, where you are. Like that's it. And, and if you don't have any money, you're spending your time doing something. And my time was spent learning about SIBRs and God, I hope nobody ever discovers those first couple that I submitted. They're just terrible. Absolutely terrible. Um, and then we engaged some people to help us with that. And then we brought more of it in-house and it's been an evolutionary process. And now we're still, even though we have partnerships with Microsoft, the partnership with IBM and things are going amazingly well now, we're still submitting proposals constantly through the spec opportunity, which is the space enterprise consortium through the 22.1, we got some submissions going in. And then we look for solicitations all the time. So it's, it's now a core part of our business is to constantly be doing that on top of all the other commercial stuff. I love that you said that you started by writing your own proposals to solicitations, because I think that this is really a, it can be a critical step depending on who the entrepreneur is to learning the, how, you know, cumbersome that process is. And then you said you outsourced it and then you brought in an in-house team. And I think that that's a really nice natural progression. The other thing, you've brought up a ton of different mechanisms. You brought up consortia, which are great mechanisms. You brought up Kratos, you brought up Sibbers, STTRs. Are you doing STTRs as yeah, well? Of course. Yeah. So can you tell tell us a little bit about some of those other mechanisms, the STTRs that can that are working with the consortium, that kind of thing? So it's really for us, it was about getting traction and getting support however we could. And to your first comment, and I think these two weave together, I've always believed that I, I don't need to be an expert in everything, but I need to know enough to ask good questions. And I'll quote Albert Einstein. I, someone told me this in 2010, it has shaped my life and continues to. Albert Einstein has, has not one, but two quotes dedicated to good questions. He said, the quality of life you live is determined by the quality of questions you ask. All right, that's significant. And then he said, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking of the right question to ask. And those two things came together for me, which is why I realized I don't have good questions to ask back in 2019. And 
I, I always felt that I need to learn enough. So I submitted and went through the crazy, ridiculous process of getting all this stuff together, the amount of energy to, to get your cage code and all that stuff, just to be able to submit something and then the content to go into it. it arduous is a, a really, especially for a first time. Now it's like run of the mill. We're really good at, at pulling content together and get it done. But that first time when you don't know anything about it, you go through it. I, I did it. And I didn't do it well, but I did it to understand it. And I understood it enough to now say and understand when people were talking to me about it, what I had to do. And SBIR, STTR are really good mechanisms. And I think almost all the, anything related to space, there's a ton, whatever agency you go through, you can go through the army, you can go through the Navy, you can go through Space Force, you can go through NASA. So there's a ton of opportunity out there to leverage SBIRs and STTRs. The other documents are the other instruments, uh, such as consortium. So space enterprise consortium is a group of people where it's always been way too early for us. They typically look for, they're looking for prototypes. So you've got to have some technology already built and done, but I joined those things way too early. However, I, again, I was able to see how the process worked. I was able to make connections and build my network through that. And, and right now we're actually applying for our first for the first time, something that came through spec. So that's a unique opportunity where we can finally actually deliver a prototype that can meet their needs. And there's a whole technology readiness level that kind of limits your ability to talk to certain people. So that's why you need to go to SBIRs and STTRs. And then there's also the CRADAs. The CRADAs are Cooperative Research and Development Agreements and CRADA. And CRADAs, Honestly, if you had asked me a month ago what I thought about Kratos, I would say, oh, they're cool. You bring your stuff, I'll bring my stuff, and you work together. And it's really good to understand the problem set. There is a, a very interesting line you need to walk around IP. If you're intending to sell to the government and you don't negotiate the core language well enough and your SOW of the Kratos well enough, you could literally be handing over the rights and the light a free license to the government. So it's really scary going through that. You got to pay for the right advice to, to walk through that. However, if you do it well, you can basically stick a vacuum to your customer's head and understand every problem that they have and build out the perfect solution for them. And if and a good example of a CRADA is you've got 80% of the solution built and you need 20% of the fine tuning to support that customer need. Well, they can have a, a, on the CRADA, they can have a right to that 20%, but that 20% doesn't work without the 80%. So they would still need to go and acquire that. So there's a, a lot to learn around the CRADA side. SBIRs on the other hand, and STTRs are very clearly in the entrepreneur's favor. You end up, I think it's, you end up getting some sort of five-year a five-year window where they, they can't really award anyone else for that same thing that you submitted for. That's That sounds good. It's easy to work your way around it, but it is at least in, in favor of an entrepreneur versus some of these other things that are in favor of the government. And SBIRs, they are, they're really good intros. You get a phase one, which is typically 50 grand. And that allows you to, to, to take that and call these different people inside the DOD to say, hey, I've got this thing. Are you interested? And if they're interested, then you can start working on a memorandum of understanding and take it through the process. And for us, we ended up, we ended up getting a really good MOU signed and we weren't awarded our phase two. However, the people that signed the MOU were, were just as upset as we were. Like, we really want to work with you on this. And then they ended up submitting to us a CRADA. Like, here's what we want to do with you. And that was a, it was unique. And some of the responses we got from our very big partners were, 
holy shit, um, because of the scope was so big and the opportunity was so so good. So Kratas ended up being a significant part of where we're at today. Uh, and again, we're still applying for the SBIRs and STTRs. Hope that hope that helps. It was a smorgasbord of answers. I love that answer just because it's it demonstrates the power and the utility and the diversity of government programs. But I, I think that for someone who's not so familiar, it might be a little overwhelming. <laughs> so if I think about you know what are the new business needs, so maybe where you were a couple of years ago, I, in my mind, it's first thing you need is to understand the problem. And you know, it's typically through customer discovery. Then you need to have enough tech team built out to be able to create a, a minimum viable, a pilot prototype, proof of concept solution. And then you need to start iterating, you know, bring the customer discovery feedback and the development together to keep iterating until you have your minimum viable product. I, I, I wonder if you could reflect on how the different programs each supported your business. Our perspective internally is they are all tools to be used. And it's not, nothing about it for, again, for our business, nothing about it is a, a make it or break it. So we've decided on the path that we, we have, we decided on the solution that we want to build. And when there's a term called, I think it's called green paint IP. So if there's a tweak of a thing that you're doing, because it's a small tweak and it needs to be done this way to meet that government customer need, then there's some shared IP and things like that. So it's green paint. But the thing underneath the paint is yours. So one thing I hear um, sometimes from different space entrepreneurs is they're banking on getting you know this funding from the government. That is a very bad business model, and it does it doesn't help the economy. It doesn't help the ecosystem at all if you need the government to survive at all. And I think that is a, a distinct difference from where we are to where other entrepreneurs are because it sounds amazing. Oh, you get a $50,000 phase one, you get a $750,000 phase two, and then you can turn that into a sole source contract and get NSF grant for 250,000. You can do all these things and it sounds, sounds really well, but that doesn't, none of those things should detract from what you're actually doing and what your objective is in the business. All of those things are added tools. And to your point, some of them are, are really good networking opportunities for us. And that's all they end up being. But if we leverage those relationships, we end up getting the information and, and the customer discovery and things like that. So there's a reason to participate, but it should never be the lifeblood of your company, in my personal perspective. One of the challenges of this whole program is that the government is so opaque that it becomes very difficult to understand what are the customer's needs, what are, where are the programs, how do you find an end user to help you shape your proposal to really address the, a need that resonates? Do you have any thoughts on, or can you share how you were finding these people to go engage with? The general, so one thing I will say is every civil servant, every government person I talked to was helpful every time. Like it was very good, positive to know that they wanted to help. They genuinely wanted to help and they would tell you they couldn't, or they'd refer you to somebody. And I never got like stonewalled or roadblocked, which is really cool, which is why now we have great relationships in this huge network of people inside the DOD. I think the best path for, for most people to try and engage this and understand it is, again, focus on what you're doing and then peruse the solicitations constantly. There could be, if you're fortunate, there could be a, a call out for, I need this widget that does X, Y, and Z, and that's you. And then you even get the, you're given the, the point of contact, the POC to call them and say, Hey, I have this thing and I think it's meeting your needs. What do you think? 
and they will pick up the phone and they will respond to you. And there is a window for the SBIRs and SDTRs where you can have this open conversation and you need to do it because I've, I've had I don't know, dozens of conversations where like, yeah, no, that that's not what we want. That's not where we're going. Or I don't know about that. But usually those conversations turned into who would be good to talk to. And then I would go talk to that person. And then you just whittle it down and keep going. This is a lot of my, my sales background too, but you just drive down to you find the person that you need. And what Michael's talking about is the pre-release period, which is before the SBIR, STTR opens. Correct. Yeah. Catch that window. So it sounds like you've got a chance to work with a number of different agencies. Any thoughts on how they're different? Okay. So I, I have, again, this is my opinion. I, I hope it doesn't offend anybody, but if it does, sorry. Um, sorry, not sorry as well. So I see the science there, there's the three headed Hydra in terms of government funding and government contracts is, is how I see the U S you've got the science entities, whether it's the national NOAA national astronautics oceanic organization, or you've got NASA or NSF, those kind of things are very science oriented and they are extremely risk averse and don't have a lot of money. In the middle, you have DOD, and that's pretty much any branch of the military. They are not really risk averse and they have a bunch of money. And then on the right, you have the intelligence, um, which are really hard to get into, but they don't give a shit about going fast. Doesn't matter how much it costs, doesn't matter what it takes, they want it and they're going to make it happen. So if you can break into that, the intelligence community, you can move really quickly with really big dollars. So there's kind of that three-headed hydrant. We focused almost squarely on DOD because we don't have the clearances we need to NRO. We're just getting into that stuff now, NRO or NSA. Or, but the science stuff, we, without really trying, and, and to keep in mind, to put this in perspective, three of my advisors, one was uh, a former astronaut, another was the former chief scientist of the ISS National Lab, and the other has a lot of interactions with NASA. We ended up not pursuing any, almost anything at NASA. And then one of our partners suggested we submit to an entrepreneur challenge, which we did. And we won, and it was like 90 grand or something like that. It was a small fee, but it was a really good recognition moment. Other entities within NASA reached out to us, entities and at, at ESA reached out to us. I've been on investor calls recently, like, oh, we know who you are. We saw you win that award, which was very interesting. So there's, again, the award was nice. It was small, but we participated and we got the exposure we needed to then progress on, on many different things on different levels. We are likely going to, for our, for the first time ever, submit for some SBIR or something for NASA uh, this year. So that's just my perspective on the difference between the different entities. And, and if you're very science-based, NSF and, and NASA may be really good targets for you. For us, we were solution-based and user-based, which was the warfighter or the operator. So that's where we were at the DOD. And overall architecture, now we're getting into some of the intelligence community stuff. So it, that's what was appropriate for our business. So you mentioned investor. I'm assuming it was government non-dilutive funding, but then maybe now you're looking at investors. So it'd be dilutive funding. Maybe you also had some personal money or some angel kind of investments. Can you talk about what order you went in and why? I can go back to my statement, do whatever you can with what you have where you are. That's all that matters. Uh, <laughs> as long as you're moving, and sometimes as long as you're moving in any direction, you can at least make some progress. Another a mentor of mine said, you can make a good decision and it's good. You can make a bad decision and fix it. If you make no decision, you can't do anything about it. 
and you can die on the vine, which is appropriate. So just do stuff. You know, I, um, as a CEO of this company, some people may not like hearing this, but I try and move fast and break shit uh, as quickly as I can. So with all that being said, we ended up, I ended up funding uh, the company in the very beginning myself. And then we ended up getting angel money for our, our pre-seed round and that helped. And we didn't, we had submitted for our, we submitted a good phase one uh, proposal and we ended up winning that all bef- And then we, but we raised money before we actually won that too. So there was not too much of an impact from the investor's perspective, but again, we were early. We had a really good team of people. We had really good advisors and a very big vision. So they were willing to take the risk. We've since evolved into having these partnership agreements with commercial. We only have a couple, we won the award with NASA and we have very good engagements and the CRADA is probably the most significant government agreement that we have. And now we're raising other money. So from the investor perspective, investors want to have everything checked off. And as it's a chicken and egg problem, as an entrepreneur, it's like, all right, you want me to have a product and you want me to have the market and you want me to do all this stuff, but I don't have any money. And they're like, I'll give you money if you can do all those things. And it's a very frustrating thing for an entrepreneur. The non-dilutive opportunity, although amazing, takes time, takes a lot of time. And in that time, you still need to make progress. You still need to keep the lights on and and keep technical things happening. So it's a balance that you have to make. And again, our perspective, so we're doing a round right now and we are highly confident we're going to win more awards and get some contracts and commercial engagements and things like that. However, the money we're raising as a dilutive side of things, we're raising everything we need. So then when any contract comes in, it's just additional runway or additional pathway for us to accelerate. So there's no, there's, again, it's about doing what you need to do for the business and then folding in every other tool that you can. Can you quantify the value you've gotten from your government, the government programs you've participated in, whether CRADA, CIBR, anything else? So there is, there's a whole lot of, one, one thing I, I didn't actually mention are, are, are primes. So in addition to SBIRs and SCTRs, and there's a lot of weaving between all of these things, there are primes. Right now there's an orbital prime for, for space, and it's, it's really about OSAM on, on orbit logistics. Those primes are the government recognizing that the market has a need for a market to be primed. The commercial market can't yet step in. So this is to what we just said about investor um, chicken and egg problem. So the government's adding a rooster and being that, hey, we know the commercial market isn't ready to support this. So we're going to come in and we're going to support it. The U.S. government got their ass handed to them for, for the drone market because they sat back and they said, oh, the commercial market will figure this out. And now there is a very precarious situation with not friendly nations in the U.S. for that technology. They didn't want that to happen. So they tested this concept of priming a market with Agility Prime, which is EV to EV tolls, electric, excuse me, electronic vertical takeoff and landing vehicles. And now they've just released uh, the Orbital Prime to be able to prime the market to do orbital logistics because they know the commercial market isn't quite there. So. Um, that was done under an organization called Spaceworks, and there's another organization called AFWorks that Spaceworks sits under. And there's um, Softworks, which I think is for like SOCOM and such. And there's a bunch of other organizations that are kind of bridging the traditional SBIR path and, and the entrepreneurial move fast path. The value of these things is not just in the dollar amount that comes out. The practice of going through these things 
I'll give you a super basic example. Um, and Katie, you probably appreciate this one. Writing a business model is not so much for the person that has to read it. It's making sure you can answer all the questions that go into a business plan. Um, and it's, it's a huge, hugely beneficial practice to go through the actually executing or not executing, but actually creating content to fill in a good business plan. It just makes you think of questions you don't have. And if you think about SBIRs or AFWorks or going through the process of applying for these things and trying to get into them by themselves adds value to your business. It has you understand things about the questions that they're asking, how they're asking those questions, why they're asking those questions, helps you craft your understanding of your own product and how it applies. So every single step has been valuable at sometimes painstakingly valuable, other times at financially valuable, but there's been value that we've been able to see out of almost everything. The body of content that you end up creating as well makes the process even easier. Like I said, now we can submit for multiple proposals simultaneously because we have such a clear body of content that's applicable to so many different things. So when you first said the word prime, I thought of something different. I was thinking prime contractor, like a Raytheon, a Lockheed Martin, a General Dynamics, something like that. Have you had experience with working with some of the major primes and what are your thoughts on that? Really good question. When I first heard Prime, I was thinking Optimus Prime and Transformers. So I've come a long way since then. <laughs> um, with regards to contracts and primes and things like that, the it's definitely, again, as a small business entrepreneur, it may sound great. For us, for us uniquely, working with some specific big primes that they are an aircraft carrier and you are a dinghy, whether they intend to or not, they could swallow you whole. And some of the non-disclosure agreements that we've seen are quite ridiculous in that they have a paragraph where it says, if anyone that you interact with remembers this, then you can't hold it to them because it's a human brain, something ridiculous like that. And what that actually turns out to be is you're talking to some people that really like what you're doing and they're very genuinely trying to help you, which I found is true. And they'll have a water cooler conversation and that water cooler conversation about your project, even though you're under NDA, it's such a huge company that that other person ends up having their own water cooler conversation. And then that turns into some other project that is identical to yours. And, and some of the language in those contracts, the NDAs even says, even if it's identical to what you just presented and they can't, you can't do anything about it because the whisper down the lane and this other person thinks that they came up with the idea themselves because they had a piece of the information from a water cooler conversation, but it was the seed that they needed to come up with the idea based on the conversation that you had under NDA. So the big primes don't necessarily intend to mow you over, but they can. And even if they don't mean to do it, it can still happen. When I decided I wanted to do something in space, I knew nothing and no one. And what it took was me having a really good vision. Again, I wasn't even a technical person by any means. I wasn't capable of building satellites or any of that stuff, but I had a really good vision and I ended up attracting amazing talent on our advisory team. Like I already mentioned, the former chief scientist of the ISS National Lab. Randy is really smart. He's a very smart guy. And, but he believed in me and he gave me his support. But quite critically, he lent me his credibility. And by him lending me his credibility and being able to help me answer, ask questions and then help me answer some of those questions, I was able to attract better talent and ask better questions and, and move down. It was a virtuous cycle. So I recognized really quickly what I didn't know and what I didn't have. And I put together an amazing advisor team that has literally made the difference uh, for us.
Is, is there anybody that you would like to connect with or that would like to engage? Yeah, so we're about to do a raise right now. And we've been soft circling a bunch of investors. And as, as you've heard, we've got relationships with Microsoft, a documented relationship with Microsoft and IBM. We've got Discreta that's creating a whole bunch of other wonderful relationships for us. And we've gotten our technology radiation tested. We're doing more testing. We'll get to tier level six here in the next uh, month or two. We've been making a ton of progress, but like I said, we need capital. And we've got a portion of the round already committed just from previous investors and, and soft conversations I've already had. So if there's interest in investing from any level, I definitely would, would be open to that conversation. That was Michael Bloxton from Nebula Compute. And we know that understanding and applying for federal funding can be convoluted. So please visit Undiluted on fedscout.com to hear more founders' stories and find guides, checklists, and Q&A forums to help you explore federal non-dilutive capital for your tech startup. We release new episodes each week, so please like, follow, and subscribe to make sure you're getting alerted when new episodes are released. Thank you for listening.